think is working. Uh, that's what you said. Uh, well, I said he was using a different microphone. Oh. He's using a black microphone because I think there was something wrong with the connection on this one, but it's not my service. So I'm <laughs> 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 clear on what the problem is. There is a in a different religious house. <laughs> I guess in your own tradition, I remember as a boy, young boy, we were Catholics. And um, this was in the 50s, early 50s. And uh, the boy next door, was my good friend, was a Presbyterian. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that was really a problem. <laughs> Not for me, I always thought, well, okay. He's not going to heaven. It's <laughs> weird, I thought. That was before the Vatican II, when I, the Catholic Church uh, became a little more ecumenical. Uh, but uh, we ourselves, in this particular uh, tradition, a, a particular um, um, lineage, if you will, spiritual lineage within Hinduism, which is rather a broad uh, term, includes um, obviously there are many strands of Christianity these days too and a few different Islamic ones <laughs> um, and Buddhist as well but I think the Oriental uh, traditions as a whole tend to have more of an inclusive perspective the Abrahamic religions tend to more have an exclusive perspective um, and uh, that's not to fault one praise the other's observable uh, fact. Uh, that said, within uh, all the various religious traditions um, that have some track record, let's say, that have some tradition, um, uh, have uh, taken the time to articulate their perspective, theological perspective through a, a body of uh, sacred literature and so forth. I'm distinguishing these traditions from kind of making it up as, as you go along, which happens as well today in today's society. Uh, great traditions that have a track record, by that I mean they have extraordinary uh, persons of great spiritual uh, character to that anyone can look to from any tradition and say this person uh, has kind of gone beyond uh, the, the, the limits of human constraints and the human uh, frailties in, in, in a sense to sainthood of, 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 of some variety even though the Protestants were kind of against the saints I think um, I think they were more against the originally the abuse of of the church um and, and, and uh, Saint Good in, in name alone, and certainly they had their powerful reformers, founders, and so on and so forth. So, um, literary legacy. In other words, if you're going to tell me what you believe in, it might be good if you wrote it down, so I can make sure you're not contradicting yourself here and there. <laughs> and uh, you, you've made an effort; it's thought out. There's some. There's some. There's some reasoning. Um, to to your your faith that, that your heart 
is harmonized with your head as well as such a thing can be done. Obviously, the, the heart experience, if you will, of transcendence or of, of, this, of, this, of the divine is something that transcends reasoning, um, but it's not unreasonable, nonetheless. So it can be reasoned about, and so the harmonizing of the, the head and, and the heart um, is important, and the attempt to express the heart with one's head in a way that um, really speaks then about one's experience through the language of of, of reasoning, limited, limited as it is, it, 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 it's uh, still an important exercise to do that. So there are traditions that have done that, and uh, they have uh, saints or luminaries within them that um, that stand out and um, and uh, are should be honored by all different uh, religious persuasions and non-religious persuasions for that matter as well um, but that said I think there are two also basic divisions um, within the religious world one with a religious orientation to a particular tradition the other is a mystical orientation to the tradition one is to lead a human life as colored with religious um, perspective and um, morally um, sound or in the pursuit of such um, uh, moral correctness, if you will. Um, And the other, the the mystical orientation is is to kind of, uh, let's say, transcend the moral realm and enter into the in the here and the now the experience of um, of the of the soul of the of, of divinity in a way that's um, that um, really enables one to harness the human uh, passions and so forth and kind of I want to say like rise above um Morale, not to be immoral, but so that anyway, there's a religious orientation and there's a mystical orientation. And uh, the religious orientation often lends itself to quarreling with others of another religious orientation and the arguing about details and, and, and whatnot. Uh, they sing this song, we sing this song, that's one's wrong, one's right. And the mystical uh, orientation. Is, is not caught up in that. It looks for the substance over the form, if you will, identifies with that. And still, there are differences in discussions amongst the mystics about the nature of the experience of transcendence or the divine possibilities that lie there and so forth. That's kind of a non-violent uh, discussion. And... Um, religious orientation is meant, I think, to bring us in that direction rather than to uh, um, um, turn into something that's rather uh, contrary to this real substance of all religious traditions that causes us to argue, 
others about details, even when they may have better qualities than ourselves at times. So, so, and with regard to ourself, um, of course, we, as I say, our particular um, tradition within the broad umbrella of Hinduism is a theistic tradition, and within that tradition, there are a number of lineages as well, and we are one of those streams of the of the, of the river that enters into the ocean of, of love of God, and the um, luminary of our particular lineage, um, whom we kind of single out, if you will, um, in, in in a modern era, is Kedarnath Bhaktivinod, who was the first person in our tradition to begin an interface between our faith and the modern world. This was at the time when British were occupying India, and so the modern world, if you want to call it that, the British uh, Empire and all, um, was um, um, to be encountered in India and in the Indian, Indian tradition, religious tradition, and so forth, and so forth, was brought into question and compared to Christianity, which um, um, some of the British thought you know, to give, purify the heathens and give them true one true religion, and some of them became converts <laughs> uh, to Hinduism, also, um, or, or didn't become converts, and but appreciated the depth of their spirituality. And um, so Bhakti Vinod, he um, in the uh, he was in the nineteenth uh, um, century and just the first first ten, twelve years of the twentieth century that um, he made his contribution. So I say he began an interface with uh, with the modern world, with the Western world. And um, he wrote uh, letters to Thoreau and Emerson, uh, who were considered the first American transcendentalists, who had been influenced um, by the Eastern Revelation, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and so forth. Um, And he took our particular tradition and packaged it in a kind of a, what we call a perennialist Package. The, the term perennialism was first first appeared in the 16th century within the Catholic writings, theological writings, and um, a couple centuries later, in the 18th century, uh, the uh, scholar and Catholic Leibniz he took it. And the seed of that and, and developed that idea um, the idea that there is an, there is an, a, um, a current of spiritual truth that it runs throughout the world in from Aboriginal uh, tribes to sophisticated uh, so-called cultured um, um, on the other end, mo- modern modern people, 
and it, 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 is, it is a eternal truth that speaks about the reality of the prospect of ourselves beyond the limits of our humanity and expresses itself relative to different uh, cultures. And Levinas even said, and yes, even the Orientalists, they have grand ideas about the deity, so forth. So, again, that was in the um, 18th century, beginning, by beginning of the 18th century. Then, in, in the 20th century, skipping over um, Bhakti, you know, you have Huxley's famous book of perennial philosophy was the name of his book and he um, popularized this idea in, in the modern world uh, I don't know that Bhakti Vinod began his work um, before Huxley's book I, I believe came out um, but he I think without knowing the history that I'm speaking about he just had this perennialist kind of perspective that he uh, developed mm. He used to say, for example, when I go into a different religious house, a mosque, or a church, then I think, oh, and they're worshiping him that differently here, in this way, he's accepting worship here in this way. And as long as the constituents were exhibiting qualities of, uh, of you know, be expected from religious people, and they think, oh, there, he has many faces, the Godhead, many ways in which... Uh, he appears. And then, of course, there's a side to this perennialism that was f- followed in pursuit of uh, Huxley's book that, that Bhakti Vinod differed from significantly. And that is the side where um, the perennial philosophy um, became identified with the monistic tradition of Hinduism, which is a transcend, which posits a transcendence, non-differentiated, a oneness, like a one pulsating, liberated consciousness, and the idea there was that all the different religious traditions were trying to speak about something that was ineffable and limited by their cultures and language. And so all of these cultural um, aspects and and so forth were useful but ultimately disappeared. Hmm? And the, the ultimate truth was this undifferentiated just kind of um, consciousness, the individual was dissolved and there's one soul, something like this. So um, there are a number of people who have pop- popularized that, even the late uh, Houston Smith, um, a well-known author and uh, uh, philosopher, theologian, um, was a proponent of, of that. But the difference and the significant difference of Dr. Melvin's perennialism was that it was a theistic perennialism that posited the idea that that, that the highest uh, the fullest expression of transcendence is not an undifferentiated 
something that you can say nothing about. But the, the more differentiated it is, the, the more developed it is. Um, what I mean by that is, the if we love someone, then we love them because we're acquainted with their particulars. I love someone not another because he or she has these particulars. So the specificity of the object of our love is the very thing that makes the love possible. If we do weigh with the, weigh with the specificity, then the God is undifferentiated, then the prospect of, of loving is, is rather um, limited. Especially if there's only one soul. So, uh, so he had a theistic form of perennialism, and for example, with regard to let's say the Christian archangels and their descriptions of the heavens and so forth, and the particular rituals and prayers and the advent of the Christ and so on and so forth, um, the. Uh, the Islamic uh, reformer or founder Muhammad and their culture and their um, what their rituals their 99 names of God that they chant and so on and so forth and, and what not in the Hindus and, and their rise within, within Hinduism as I mentioned that all of these cultural expressions were what he called near darshan darshan is a word that means to see, to be, to, 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 for the God to reveal itself to us, to be seen, hmm? allowing Himself to be seen. If God wants to be seen, to be seen. If not, well, <laughs> it's, it's up to Him. If he wants to reveal Himself. If the Infinite wants to reveal itself to the finite. It can do so, but the finite cannot arrest the Infinite. Hmm? So, um, and. Because the nature of transcendence in the Godhead was was a was a was a of the nature of love, which requires this reciprocation between us and the Godhead, rather than just being one soul, hmm? kind of sparks in the fire, small souls and and the big soul in, in the interaction. The the nature of that interaction in transcendence is represented partially. The darshan, what that's like, is represented here in what's called, referred to as a near darshan, proximity of, 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 of a proximity, a, 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 a uh, approximation of that that had inherent value and power and so on and so forth. So he honored all the not only the essential ideas of each theistic tradition, but also the the practices the conception of the Godhead. Hmm? Um, it wasn't difficult for him to do so because within Hinduism that's already going on. You have Shiva, picture of God. You have the Krishna, picture of God. The Vishnu, picture of God, and so forth. And um, even within the Vishnu, picture of God, you have, you have many different faces of the Godhead, hmm? which is said to speak about different types of, of love of God. And and the and it kind of depicts the Godhead as a, as a precious jewel. So if you have a blue sapphire, 
and then you look at it from so many different angles, there's so many facets that you'll see. So from so many different angles, he shows himself, it's approached, and so, so this is already built into to Hinduism. So to extend that, then, the world over, this was, in, was second nature for the Thakur Bhakti Vinod, to do this and package Gaudi Vaishnavism kind of unknowingly, I think, in one sense, in a perennialist kind of package that, that, uh, that hadn't been um, before. Hmm? And so it's rather um, inclusive, if you will, um, even within the inclusiveness of, <laughs> of Hinduism. And um, it's pity, it's, it's a shame when we see um, members of such a broad-minded uh, tradition as that of Bhaktivinoda in our lineage succumbing to over-identification with form, over-substance. Again, not that the form has no value, it, it, it does. It's a, it, again, if there's love of God, what will it look like? Well, what does love look like? What other we supposed to say that it looks entirely different than what we know a partial representation of love looks like here? She looks similar. The beautiful thing about the Krishna conception of God is that when when the charge of anthropomorphism comes, as he's depicted in a very human-like. Hmm? We emphasize the point human-like has to be, you have to look at both sides of it, human and like. Like means not the same. Human-like, but not human. So this is the way in which the Bhagavatam, for example, our sacred text, kind of walks up a, a, a tightrope between Madhurya and Aishvarya between the sweetness, the human likeness of, of, of the God and the godliness, hmm? which if, if God is God and acts human-like, that, that humanness becomes very sweet then. Hmm? Um, the human-like appearance of the God is, is, is kind of like the infinite appearing in a finite-like form, so that those that are finite could have intimacy with him and not feel, oh, I'm in the presence of the infinite and then be distanced by that. It's a very charming idea, but the point I'm making with regard to anthropomorphism is that human and human alike, we're saying he's, he's, we're not saying he's, we're not positing our conception of what he should be like. He's, the like part is huge, <laughs> means, which means different. Human like means he's different than humans. In in, 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 in 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 the form of the God is not like ours when it's born and when it goes to change and uh, dwindles, dies, and so forth, it's not temporary, so on and so forth. So many, so many statements about the transcendental nature of the form of the God and so forth. And, um, so, so it's a beautiful, um, beautiful idea, and um, and one that properly understood, should afford us appreciation of all forms of religious expression that are truly such and have, as I said, kind of criteria that I mentioned earlier, 
some great, some, they've written it down, you can see what they actually have to say, but it is, have some persons who've practiced it and developed the, uh, the, the perfection that it posits, and that perfection has a correspondence with the perfection in other traditions that makes people who have attained it um, desirable uh, from all traditions. In other words, even if we are in a particular tradition, we find a saint from another, we would like to have their association also tell them why we think a little differently about the nature of something that he's already attained and we're on our way to a different department of, so to speak. Uh, so, um, so I just mentioned this because you're here and you're in a different setting, but it's, uh, it's worked well for your daughter, a very bright young lady and sincere and so forth. So I'm wondering if, um, as you see, we have a, 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 a musical approach to things, although we're not that musical. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us are. I mean, you're a musician, a lot of them are a musician. Um, but your daughter's a musician, and although she never, never lets it out here. I mean, <laughs> you've never seen your, is it an oboe? You've never seen it. I'd like to see that at some point. Are you a musician also? No, I'm not. Doesn't run in the family, huh? Well, well, all the kids were, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah well, it's um, music, poetry is obviously a medium uh, to try to um, extend the power of words beyond their their limits and therefore a suitable mode of expression to speak about that which is really ineffable. Being beyond the limits of, of language doesn't mean we can't say anything about it, but there's not enough that we can say about it. And the language that would be most suitable or the medium of expression most suitable to try to capture it is poetic and musical, where the world is is expanded. You know, music and lyric and even the sounds, um, we extend the world. Music has, notes have, have forms, actually. And um, some people can see them. I wrote about it in my commentary of uh, Gopal Tapani. That's a number of particular scientific experiment that, sh- that showed the form of notes. And when they play the ohm, it took a shape like the mandala, yantra, yantra yeah. and so forth. Um, one of my students, he was a, a, a concert pianist, and he could see the notes. <laughs> um, so it is with the mantra that it has it has a corresponding form, mm-hmm. and it's 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 a, it's a sacred geography within the subjective world. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting uh, concept, of course, the meditative world. Um, Uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, and as I say, with, with music, the sounds extend beyond the forms that we can readily see into other forms that are not visible, that we can get some impression of by, by hearing. Of course, there are different kinds of music, and so different uh, 
in all this. You compare the hip hop to the kind of, you know, you're going to get the same result. Music we play here, but uh, <laughs> but uh, also then uh, with with poetry, that's a good example. Or, or what or the poetic lyrics we find to um, songs are always stretching the world. And the moon has can have wings and fly across the sky. In poetry, it makes the world more like we, as a soul, that are kind of like a fish out of water. Here, feel the world should be. We kind of feel the world shouldn't have the limitations that it does, and the, the contradictions that it's filled with that perplex us. Um, and so forth because we are a unit of harmony actually as, as an out as a soul and, and the limitations that allow birds only to fly in the sky and fish only to swim in the water uh, don't apply to the self because in our perspective of course consciousness is the soul hmm? so the question of do you believe in a soul is really not a question for us you can't say, do you believe in consciousness? You've got to have consciousness to ask, to ask the question. Hmm? To ask the question, do you believe in consciousness? The question itself is rooted in consciousness. So it's the, it's the bottom of everything, hmm? that everything arises out of. And that consciousness, we do not think, is a biological, has a biological um, basis to it. Hmm? And so it's... Uh, it's uh, uh, spiritual is not an emergent property of, of the brain where they're searching for it and trying to catch it. <laughs> catch it trying, consciousness trying to catch itself and not realize it that it's doing so. <laughs> rather, than, rather than let go and be all that consciousness is, so to speak. Um, um, so, uh, so, that being the case, if consciousness, if the soul tra- really transcends time and space, well, now it's appearing within time and space and identifying with time and space and, and drawn to worldliness rather than to godliness. It gets help from the other side. It can go in the direction of godliness and it can pursue rather than through the world itself, um, through the spiritual path, the, 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 the reality of the soul's um, Transcendence to uh, time and space, which are again limiting factors. And so, I mean, we want the we want we want to love forever, but the world doesn't let us. It's just like we, we don't fit. Hmm? Every we, we we resist impermanence, although it's all pervading. Hmm? We resist it because we're not impermanent, as I've said before. If we were impermanent, why would we resist? We're of a different nature. So we don't fit, but we want the world to be bigger than it is, to last longer, to be um, peaceful, harmonious, uh, and to not have the the limitations that it does. We want there to be answers to the questions the children ask. Einstein said that he was smart because he never stopped asking the questions the children ask. That parents say, "Don't worry about it. There's no answer. Do something else. Get get busy here." Hmm? 
you'll grow up and realize there's no answer to that. So, um, so again, poetry it, it tends to extend the world and talk about it in a way that it's it's bigger hmm, and more accommodating for that which we we are, for our, more accommodating of our own nature. Hmm. But just to speak about it poetically is, is I think, not sufficient. But to use poetic language, music, song, and so forth, to express ideas, experiences of, of, of saints that are passing them on through their music, through their poetry, and so forth. Then, then, then there's the possibility that of, in the context of talking about the world, experiencing that which transcends which we are a unit of. So, so this is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was very, um, of course, um, this was his method, Sankirtan, the congregational singing of the names of God. It's also a very unifying principle, as we're talking about, kind of the underlying truth of the different great religions, um, that being that he emphasized the, the, the sacredness of the sound of God or the name of God. So you can find that in every religious tradition. In the, in the, in the Catholic Christian tradition, the Bible it says, in the beginning there was the, the logos, the word, the sound, and, 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 and the word was God. Hmm? So this identification or under something about the sacredness of the name of God or Jesus, for example, um, you find it in Islam they have sacred names for God. In the Jewish Jewish tradition you have that even God's name is so sacred that no one can utter it. But the same principle is there. And in Hinduism, well, there are forms of Buddhism too. Amitabha Buddhism, pure land Buddhism, is very much focused on seeing the name of the Buddha and so forth. So this idea that that the Godhead is represented in sound, Mm -hmm. logos, uh, it it means sound, and it also implies a logic that underlies it. So it's a sacred sound. There's a a meaning, Mm -hmm. deep underlying profound uh, ultimate meaning purpose of life is found in the sound that is that is representative of the one with the God uh, so to speak so Chaitanya Mahaprabhu kind of focused on something that all the different religious traditions also agree upon and then he made a theology out of the name of God. In the reason that there are different names of God describing different qualities of God, you know, the the um, the the anointed one, maybe that's the Christ, or or the all of the Almighty One. Surely God is Almighty, and God is anointed, and uh, God is Krishna, which means all, all beautiful one, and so forth. And, and uh, she means the all auspicious one, and so forth. So, um, many names of God, and speaking about different aspects, different facets of the jewel of God, the different qualities 
and so on and so forth. So he was a very much a, had a, a policy or a teaching and theology of the, of the name of God. And uh, has, uh, has great uh, potential to be uh, a unifier. And this is a time in the world where a unification of religions would be a good, would be a good idea. Where they, where they, if they are to fight, they should fight against misrepresentations of themselves that give them a bad name and make the world a dangerous place at times. Should use much against the misrepresentation of the tradition as we are against um, uh, non-theistic traditions that that you know, positive, that posit kind of a um, uh, moral uh, relativism. That's problematic uh, as, as well. Many have been morally correct fundamentalist um, terrorists. And on the other side, so <laughs> two ends of the of the spectrum. So, some thoughts. Any questions? Yes. Uh, regarding different facets of God, and you talked about converting. Um, so, like, if if God has in- invested uh, energy into a soul, like turning it into a Christian, then. Um, why would it would another facet of it, like say like the Islamic facet, uh, kind of change that and convert that soul into another? So why would someone convert from one religion to another? Yeah, like from God's perspective, it doesn't seem to make sense. To me. It seems like if someone becomes a Christian, it seems like that's where he should be. Well, I think that the way that we become identified with any particular tradition is through the principle of association with persons of that tradition who have an effect upon us, right? Mm-hmm. We meet people of a particular tradition and they are they have a certain conviction about them, perhaps. Well, we may be born into a faith. Hmm? That's another thing. Our parents may have a faith and, and, a, and a conviction. We may be born into that. They may influence us, but they may not be of these same of, of have the strength of conviction that plays out in such a way that it that it wears off on us or makes impressions upon us that um, and that's often the case. Parents say you should go to church, but then they don't act like. Am I doing? Why am I doing this? They say we should go over there or something. Like that. Um, so. Um, I think that people identify with different religions by way of association of influential people in a particular tradition. And it depends how influential the person is, um, how much of an impression it makes upon an an individual, um, whether or not that will be the tradition that they... Um, pursue and realize the uh, the face of God that that tradition um, promotes, if you will. And so, um, like, look, look, I'll take myself for example. 
I was born in a Catholic family. My father didn't go to church. He went for a while and then he stopped going. And uh, my mother more went, but then um, things changed in the household. She had to work and and um, it became harder for her and so on. And then they sent me to Catholic school. But the priests in high school... I wanted to be a priest because I, I thought because I learned about it, I thought well, this is what you do, how you should do it you know, you're gonna do it you should do it <laughs> kind of how I thought about it but then the priests who were teaching in the school I guess didn't find their character to be you know, compelling and so I became disillusioned by that I didn't get the strong enough association <laughs> to have this impressions and then again. I may have had impressions from a previous life as well, but anyway, <laughs> when I met, when I met uh, Prabhupada, then yeah, it was like meeting someone I had known forever, and, and uh, the impressions were very strong. So I think it's it's, it's relative to that. And I've met people, um, very nice people, who were were Catholics and were really devout. And they came in touch with our tradition, and they were very compelled by it, and they they loved it, and in many respects, and would like to come and chant and so on. But they would never give up their Catholicism either. I've met people like that. Um, so there we go. And that's a particular conception. I mean, we of course have a map, if you will of inclusiveness where we would place each of those um, religious traditions in terms of where they play out in the heavens or transcendence and so for example the beatific vision of Catholicism which was supposed to be be all and end all we would refer to it as Shantarasa Mm -hmm. so that helped Mm -hmm. yeah anything else Yes. You, you spoke about uh, how the, how God is the infinite uh, becomes finite to uh, to engage uh, with uh, to to engage with the creation. I guess, for lack of a better word, um, as as human like. You, and you said that like was a very important part of that that equation. So I wonder if, if uh, you could say then, if God it, it appears as Krishna in a human-like, then can you say that humans are God-like? And if they are, if that statement is correct, what is the nature of that likeness? Uh-huh. Yes, humans are God-like in a sense, um, in, in a couple of ways. One way is uh, that in human life the again what is called the soul in Christianity which is largely a platonic notion of the soul there is an Aristotelian conception of the soul within some schools of Christianity as well the larger one is the Platonic one, which is much like in Hinduism. There is a soul and there's a body. Hmm. 
Aristotelian was like the soul is the body, is the body is the soul, it's like that. So, um, the eroticic conception of the self or consciousness from the Gaudi or from Gita's point of view. But the Platonic perspective is like Neoplatonism in Europe was like Vedanta from India. Um, so, the idea is what? That because consciousness is a soul, and consciousness is also is pan, it, it's a pan-psychic perspective. So consciousness is everywhere. Hmm? It's not something that just emerges from a human brain. Um, now they're finding, today I read an article that they've, they've discovered through science that ducks have egos. <laughs> and they they can they can they have abstract thinking capacity to think abstractly hmm. in, you know, in some limited way um, and not long ago I was saying I heard an article that they found that insects and insects had egos that means there was there's a sense of I that's there hmm, that we give them in cartoons but they already have it. <laughs> Thanks, but we already have it. <laughs> kind of a thing. So, um, so this, of course, is, is a very Hindu idea that, 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 that it's not just the humans that have souls. Animals have souls, but the soul, while transcendent to matter and the physical and psychological package that we're in, is nonetheless shaped by this to some extent. Hmm? So this, the shape that the soul is in is limits the way in which it can express itself in this world. So like if you're in a Volkswagen and you step on the pedal, you're going to go a certain speed. <laughs> if, you're in a, if you're in a Ferrari and you step, you're going to go another speed. You have the capacity to step on the pedal, but you're the same, the driver could be the same. But the vehicle would limit its ability to express himself through it. So, so amongst the different forms of life, the human life is the form of life in which the, the soul is kind of coming to the surface. And abstract thinking is extreme, and there's philosophy and wondering about why am I, what the meaning and purpose of life is. That's the, the preoccup- we're preoccupied with, with meaning. And values and so forth. So, human life is differentiated in this way from the less complex form of life, and there's this transmigration. So that there's an evolution of consciousness. So the self is moving through different species of life by the influence of karma, and it will get a human life, at which time it can directly pursue the realization of what it is beyond the, these these different bodies. Hmm? And so that makes humans different than the less complex forms of life and more godlike, being more self-conscious and being and, and with an ability to be conscious and aware of others in ways that they may not be. Hmm? Limited as they, as they are by the bodies they're in, they're struggling within those bodies for an existence. Hmm? We, we could like, you know, pull them apart or, you know, making arrangements to... We can ruin the whole thing, you know, as well. 
um, we can we can destroy the world and we can be caretakers of it that uh, you know enhance it and so forth. So we're godlike in that way in relation to other species of life, and also because if we were to ask what in the world is most like God, hmm? then the Upanishads they say the self is, and then it's referring to consciousness, which is not objective like the material world, but subjective and um, full of value, meaning, and so forth, uh, where meaning derives and so forth. And because that soul or consciousness is coming to the surface in human form, hmm, therefore, the more the soul is coming out, the more the godliness, if you will, of the of of, of, of within the world is is is, is manifesting. So those ways humans are like like God, if you will. But like means different, also. In human life, you know, we can really. We can really love. We have much more capacity to do things voluntarily. Mm-hmm. You see the bumper sticker, you know, perform random acts of kindness. You know. mm-hmm. Most of the species of life are not able to think like that, although they, there's an atma there, a self there. They're restricted by the body they're in, which is acquired by karma. We have the. We're like. If the world was a prison, we're like on probation. <laughs> so, we got a little leash, you know, some freedoms, and with it comes some responsibilities. If we live up to the responsibilities, then we can, we can really utilize the human life for for the vehicle that it is. And not just to see, not, not much of the modern humanism is to just like improve the human species within. Humanity. We see the improvement of the human species, or the full development of the human species, is 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 to, is to become spiritual. So you have animality, you have humanity, you have spirituality. Humanity is this in between. You have the both sides. Hmm? Just to become a big animal with a better sex life and a bigger budget to pursue it. It's not like <laughs> a very good idea of um, human perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, the, therefore, the Bhagavatam says that Jivasya Jivana. Human life should never be lived just for sense indulgence. Kamasya, Kama, for lust. But rather, it should be lived because it gives us the opportunity to inquire about that which transcends the senses. That's what ecstasy means. It's beyond the senses. There is a joy that lies beyond the limits of the senses, in touch with sense objects, lusting for them, trying to acquire and be more by acquisition, to let go. You can be more. You can be bigger, kinder, and and again transcend the, the limits of humanity and harness the human passions. That's to be transcendental. So now.
Yeah. Okay, so let's stop there. Shri Sri Gornitananda Ki Jai. Krishna Guru Parampara. Jai. Jai. Go with Premanandir. Haribo.